Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, who should consider lung cancer screening? We'll hear from the medical director of the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate. Some discussion of smoking cessation is mandatory in the decision to initiate lung cancer screening. You don't have to quit, um, but we do have to talk to you about quitting and try to provide your resources. What is celiac disease? A registered dietitian nutritionist explains the disease and why a gluten-free diet is important. Some people have no symptoms, but there may be things happening in the background that they're not aware of. And we'll hear from a physician about how physicians and their patients can work together to make wise medical decisions. It is encouraging. It's early days. I do think we're making progress on curbing a very important problem. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore celiac disease and gluten-free diets with a registered dietitian nutritionist. Then we'll learn how physicians and their patients can work together to make wise medical decisions. But first, during the month of November, we're taking a close look at lung cancer, and we'll hear all about lung cancer screening programs and who qualifies for them. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 80% of the lung cancers discovered through screening are early stage and mostly curable, but only about 2% of the people eligible for lung cancer screening actually undergo the test. For help making sense of this is Dr. Jason Wallen in the HealthLink on Air studio. He's the medical director of the Thoracic Oncology Program and the division chief of thoracic surgery at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Wallen. Thank you. Now, Upstate's Thoracic Oncology Program is 20 years old this month, so I've been doing some research on lung cancer, and I was surprised by these numbers. 80% is encouraging, but why are only 2% of the people who qualify for screening actually coming in to have it done? Uh, it's a great question. I think uh, a big problem is awareness. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people, there's a lot of fear uh, associated with lung cancer. I think as human beings, uh, we're all very nervous to be told uh, that we're sick or that we've got a major health problem and it becomes easy to ignore it. And uh, I think there's also a perception that everybody who has lung cancer does poorly anyway. People don't want to be told to stop smoking. You know, there's a lot of uh, negativity surrounding uh, appointments like this. And uh, I think I'm the same way. You know, you, you just want to avoid unpleasantness. But I think the statistics that you quoted are really, really important because uh, not only are 80% of the lung cancers detected on screening uh, early stage, um, also 80% of early stage lung cancers are curable. So and if you do come in and find out that you've got something, the sooner you get it looked at or treated, maybe the better odds. It makes a huge difference because if you look at the older statistics, just broadly speaking, uh, only about 20% of lung cancer patients survive if you're looking at all stages. And uh, unfortunately, historically, the vast majority of lung cancers are, dis are discovered at a late stage. And I think that another thing that uh, goes with awareness, and, and we hear a lot from patients, is that, you know, how can I have a lung cancer? I feel fine. And, uh, and that's a, a huge um, 
problem because you don't want to find the lung cancer when it's causing a problem, when it's causing symptoms, because that invariably means that it's an advanced stage and our cure rates go way down. So the time to find it is when it isn't causing any problem at all. And so the people who are feeling fine, who are at risk for lung cancer, are really the ones we want in screening. In fact, it's not even called screening anymore once you have symptoms. Um, then you're trying to evaluate a specific symptoms. Screening, by definition, is for patients who don't have any problems at all, and those are the ones that we're most likely to save. So let's talk about what's involved in lung cancer screening. Um, what's, how is it done? So it's one of the uh, easier tests that we do. Uh, it involves a CT scan of the chest, which is a painless x-ray. It's a low-dose version of the CT scans that we do for many other tests, which means that less radiation is used. Um, they do not use uh, intravenous contrast dye, which is also used in a lot of CT scans. And that's important because it makes the test longer. Uh, there are uh, some few patients who are allergic to the dye, and there are some other health problems which makes using the dye more dangerous. And so uh, when you don't use the dye, it makes the test faster, safer, and easier. You don't have to get any blood tests before it. Uh, you can literally come in and out and, and be done with the whole thing in 15 minutes. And much like women getting a mammogram, you get a letter uh, a week or so later telling you uh, either everything is fine or if there's anything else that needs to be done uh, pursuant to the exam. Now, it, this is relatively new technology? or I mean, CT scans have been around, but... Right, yeah, the technology is very old. The uh, What's new is our understanding of uh, how we can prevent people getting to advanced stage lung cancers or prevent lung cancer deaths with the use of CT scan. People have been trying to find a screening test for lung cancer for decades, and there have been many tests. The most common one was a chest x-ray, um, and the problem with chest x-rays are they do not detect lung cancers early enough for us to be able to make a difference. Sure, you can find lung cancers, but the key is really to find them at an early stage where you can change the outcome. If you find it in an advanced stage, then chances are uh, if you waited until the patient had symptoms, the outcome would be the same. And so, like I said, we, we really, uh, the, the earth-shattering revelation when CT screening came into effect was that here there actually was a test where we could very reliably detect these cancers at an early and very treatable stage. But now, let me ask you an insurance question. Mm -hmm. um, Medicare pays for this test for most people, right? Or for people who are qualified? That's correct. So as long as the patient uh, meets the criteria for lung cancer screening, um, then uh, all insurances will pay for the CT scan. Okay, that's um, good, good there, to know. There is an additional requirement um, in that uh, that you do have to have a discussion with your doctor um, about CT screening. And uh, the reason is, is because with CT screening comes a fair bit of responsibility. Um, so one thing you have to understand is, is that the vast majority of the lesions that we find on CT screening are actually benign and are not lung cancers. And that's one of the reasons why we don't like doing a lot of x-rays on people who don't have any problems, is we find things that we don't want to or don't need to find. And that does cause some anxiety and unfortunately sometimes leads to additional medical procedures that perhaps might not have otherwise been necessary. And so it's very important that patients do have an understanding of that and also that they don't really 
get so anxious or so freaked out when they find something because particularly in smokers we find lots of little nodules and spots and scars and things from uh, you know oftentimes a lifetime of, of ongoing lung damage and uh, it's up to us uh, in the thoracic oncology program or to other providers to kind of sort through the data that comes on the CT scan and try to determine what are the things that are worrisome and what are the things that are not and and that, you know, sometimes uh, there's additional follow-up studies, you know, typically lung cancer screening CAT scans are done once a year, but if we find things, oftentimes we need to do a CT scan sooner. Sometimes that means that there are biopsies or minor surgical procedures that need to be done or will be recommended. And, uh, and then there's a responsibility for ongoing follow-up. And so, it, you know, screening works if we continue to do it. This is Upstate HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jason Wallen, the Medical Director of the Thoracic Oncology Program and Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Upstate. Well, you mentioned that these scans may show nodules or things that, that aren't cancerous, that are benign. So how do you, I guess, walk me through what you do when, when you do find something on one of these scans. Um, how, how do you give that information to the patient and how you decide if one of those areas needs to do further treatment or a biopsy? So uh, it helps to have a fair bit of expertise in the subject, and to that effect, um, we have a dedicated chest radiology team uh, with folks who only look at scans of the chest, so they're not people who are looking at your knee x-ray and your back x-ray, you know, they, they really just focus on, on looking at these things. So there's a high level of expertise uh, that goes into determining uh, from an x-ray or a CT scan, you know, is this something worrisome or not? And there's a lot of different characteristics uh, of you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, we, we hear a lot of words that people use to describe the findings on CAT scans. People talk about nodules, spots, lumps, shadows. Uh, these things all mean the same thing. Uh, but for us, you know, we're looking at very specific radiographic characteristics. And what we're trying to avoid is sticking a needle in everything. You know, we want to be somewhat sophisticated about what needs to be biopsied and what doesn't so we can minimize uh, the uh, stress and complications that can come from finding things, like I said, that don't need to be found. Unfortunately, all medical procedures come with the potential for a complication. Sure. And uh, even on the best uh, surgeon's best day, the chance of having problems is not zero. And so we want to minimize the number of unnecessary things that we do. So you mentioned that people may come every year, like a woman goes for a mammogram every year. You may come for lung cancer screening. Do they look at the scans from previous years for comparison? They do, yep. Uh, particularly if there are nodules that are seen. You know, if there are no nodules, then you don't need to compare uh, as much. But if there is a nodule that you find, the first thing you want to do is look at older studies. And in fact, even if you're coming for your first CT screening uh, and you have some kind of a finding that's abnormal, the first thing the radiologist is going to want to know is if you had any other x-rays or scans somewhere else. Because um, obviously we found out that, sure, you have something that looks suspicious, but it's been there for 20 years, the chance that it's a lung cancer is pretty unlikely. So that's really helpful and that can save us a lot of procedures. Well, I want to talk about who is a candidate, um, what, what the criteria are for lung cancer screening, but I want to let listeners know um, that they can call uh, Upstate Connect at 315-464-8668 for additional information. Um, 
anyone who ever smoked, does that make them qualify for lung cancer screening? No, it doesn't. And, and that's a frustration for a lot of smokers because some people who don't meet the criteria are frustrated because they feel like they're being excluded. And it's one of the important things uh, to understand about screening studies are is that in order for them to make sense for society, they have to be able to detect uh, lesions often enough and at an early enough stage where you can intervene. And so when they did the clinical trials to establish lung cancer screening, they, they chose a patient population which they the, the uh, investigators thought would be a high-risk population. And so they picked people who are between the ages of 55 and 79 who had been smoking for many years. We always talk about uh, the quote-unquote pack year history when we're describing smokers. And it's a simple calculation where you multiply the number of packs per day that a smoker smoked times the number of years that they were smoking. And it gets a little complicated sometimes because a lot of people didn't smoke the same amount uh, throughout their entire smoking history. And sometimes they quit for a year or two and then started again. And so you, you kind of have to make your best uh, shot at an accurate calculation, but we're looking at people who have a 30-pack year history of smoking and also people who quit less than 15 years ago. And so, for better or for worse, that was the study population, and it was found in this trial that if you did a low-dose radiation CT scan once a year on these people that meet these criteria, then you decrease their chance of dying from a lung cancer by 20%. And so when we say that you can't get a screening CT scan because you don't meet the criteria, it's not us saying that we can't help you with a CT scan, but this is the population that we know we can benefit. And so that's why the insurance companies pay for it, because we know that we have an impact on that group. And further clinical trials would have to be performed to evaluate the utility for people who are perhaps younger, perhaps older, or people who smoked less. So you said uh, age 55, and then in this study it was to 79. Correct. Is that because lung cancer typically shows up in older people? That's correct. Okay. Um, now what about some, of, some people who undergo the screening are still smoking. That's correct. So you don't have to have quit in order to qualify. Absolutely not. But that's another reason why a visit with uh, your primary care provider or other interested doctor is important because uh, if you're still smoking, we want to help you to quit as obviously we want to decrease your risk of lung cancer as much as possible. And so uh, some discussion of smoking cessation is mandatory in the decision to initiate lung cancer screening. You don't have to quit, um, but we do have to talk to you about quitting and try to provide your resources to quit because obviously there are many ways to decrease the chances of dying from lung cancer. Getting CAT scans is one of them. Another one is stopping smoking. Now, someone who smoked long ago, say as a teenager, and quit and has been quit for more than 15 years, it, are they just, is their risk so much lower because they quit so long ago that they don't qualify? Or what's the reasoning for that? That's what it is. I mean, somebody who quit a long time ago uh, probably also means they didn't smoke for very long. And so their exposure is limited. And so uh, the understanding is, is that the risk of lung cancer is uh, markedly less in people who uh, smoked many years ago and who didn't smoke very much. So we do, you know, get questions from patients who smoked when they were in college and, you know, or smoked when they were in the military and, and then quit when they 
finished or exited those times in their lives. And they may have even smoked very heavy for three, four, or five years, but that's not going to get them into the so-called high-risk group. That doesn't mean they can't get a lung cancer. I mean, anybody can get any cancer at any time. Uh, there are just certain things that uh, we do that increase our risks of, of, of developing, you know, certain cancers. And so, you know, like I said, we're, we're, that's why we have to focus our attention on the high-risk populations because as you start expanding, suddenly before you know it, you're scanning everybody and we can't be running, you know, every single New Yorker through a CAT scan every year. Right. Now, isn't the rate of lung cancers in non-smokers rising? That may be true. Um, I think a bigger problem is that uh, awareness is going up and a lot of people are quitting smoking and so those non-smokers are, uh, are generating more attention. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who would have been non-smokers who developed lung cancers 30 or 40 years ago were much more likely to be in smoking and so you saw those folks a lot less. Well, thank you to the medical director of the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate, Dr. Jason Wallen. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, celiac disease and gluten-free diets. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we'll be talking about gluten sensitivity and celiac disease with my guest, Diana Stuber. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified diabetes educator at Upstate's Jocelyn Diabetes Center. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. What is celiac disease? Celiac disease is an autoimmune condition where um, when people eat gluten, which is a protein found in wheat and barley and rye, um, it starts an immune response that damages the small intestine. And that can lead to poor absorption of nutrition and other health consequences. So how would a person know that they have this? What, what kind of symptoms would they? Well, interestingly, not everybody has symptoms. Um, people might be screened because they have a relative who's been diagnosed because it, it is genetic. There's a genetic predisposition. Also, there are some classic symptoms, which would be diarrhea, um, nausea, weight loss. Those are kind of things that are considered classic that we used to think were necessary. Some people are diagnosed because they're, they have anemia, and the anemia is resistant to treatment because it can't absorb the supplements that they're taking. So are uh, the people who are diagnosed, are they typically children, uh, adults, young adults? Any age at yeah. all. Okay. Do we know what causes this? No, we don't. There are a number of theories. Um, we certainly have to have the particular genes that predispose us to this uh, this disease, but 30 to 40 percent of people in the United States have these genes. We don't know what triggers the autoimmune response. Does it, uh, well, how, how is it treated? It's The only treatment we have right now is a gluten-free diet, which okay. means eliminating any foods uh, that have gluten in them. 
So if you're able to manage this, then um, does do the symptoms get better when it's under? Um, typically, symptoms get better, but some people have either they continue to have symptoms, and that can be um, in most cases it's because they have inadvertently consumed some gluten. There have been some recent studies that indicate that even though um, a food might be advertised or a restaurant in particular might say that their product is gluten-free, it's found that it's not gluten-free. And, you know, it's like 50% of pizza places think their product is gluten-free, but it's not. Wow, interesting. So if someone has celiac disease, um, does that predispose them for other medical issues? It is linked with other autoimmune diseases. Um, we don't know that one necessarily causes the other because, again, it's that same genetic background that increases the risk for things like type 1 diabetes and um, thyroid, autoimmune thyroid disease, things like that. Uh, they're all sort of part they're, of the same they're, family? Or? Yeah, they, um, they're distinct, but... Up to 10% of people who have celiac disease may have another autoimmune disease, and it's just because of the genetic predisposition and whatever it was originally in life that triggered one of the autoimmune diseases may tribute another. All right. So what happens um, to someone who has celiac disease, but they're not being, it's not being managed? Some people have no symptoms, um, but there may be things happening in the background that they're not aware of. For example, it's not uncommon to find that someone who is newly diagnosed with celiac disease already has weaker bones because they haven't been able to absorb the nutrition that helps build strong mm -hmm. bones. So that could be osteopenia or osteoporosis. All right. I've heard people say they have um, gluten sensitivity. Is that the same thing as celiac disease? It's not the same thing. Um, celiac disease is an autoimmune disease, and there are um, markers, there are blood tests people can have that can help with the diagnosis. And in celiac disease, there is um, actual damage to the small intestine that a gastroenterologist can find when they biopsy the small intestine. Gluten intolerance is, is a kind of functional disorder. What that means is people have symptoms. Um, they may have pain, they may have bloating, diarrhea. Uh, some people describe a brain fog. They don't feel well. But when tested for celiac disease, it's not there. But they still try to avoid gluten. And, and, and some people, when they do avoid the gluten, they feel better. Oh, okay. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with registered dietitian nutritionist Diana Stuber from Upstate's Jocelyn Diabetes Center about celiac disease and gluten-free diets. So let's talk about gluten. You said it's part of protein? It, it is a protein. It is a protein. Yes. Okay. It's a storage protein, um, a group of proteins that are present in wheat and barley and rye. Um, it, they're naturally there. Most people tolerate them really easily, but others, it triggers that autoimmune response. 
what does our body use the gluten for? I mean, when you hear, when you talk about protein, you think of, you know, muscle building and things. Is this that kind of protein? It can be, yes. It's, um, in fact, there's a vegetarian source of protein called seitan, which is basically gluten. Um, it's, uh, the wheat is ground and they, they wash the starch off of it, and what's left is gluten and it can be used as a meat substitute. Oh, okay. Well, which, um, you, you mentioned wheat, rye. What are some of the foods um, that depend on gluten? I mean, I, when you say wheat and rye, I think of bread, but there's more than just bread, right? Right. With wheat, wheat is used in a lot of food products as a um, bulking agent or a, a filler, as something that helps things stay together. Um, it's used obviously in breads, it's in cereals, it's in pizza, pasta, um, tortillas. It's, it's in beer. A beer, yeah. So the barley, um, I mean obviously a barley soup will have barley in it, but beer is um, has malt flavoring in it. So the barley is used to make malt, malt vinegars, malt syrups, malted milk. <laughs> These are things that people with celiac disease can't, can't have. Can't have. Oh. Well, are there any whole grains that don't contain gluten? Yes, there are. There are a number. And some of the ones that have a better nutrition, um, have more nutrition in them, better nutrition, include quinoa and amaranth and millet. Um, sorghum is used sometimes instead of malt. Because I've always heard that, you know, whole grains are part of a healthy diet. If you have celiac disease, you have to choose different whole grains than what you typically see. Right. So we, we kind of have a system for helping people navigate a uh, gluten-free diet. And that is first, we want to get rid of the gluten. Then we want to expand a person's choices, their repertoire of food. And lastly, we want to optimize the nutritional content. So some of the things that are sometimes lacking can be fiber, uh, calcium, iron, and B vitamins. And that's because breads in the United States are um, fortified with B vitamins and iron. And so those are things you could take as a supplement? Mm -hmm. or okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most people with treated celiac disease don't have any special nutrient requirements. It's the same as it is for the general population. At diagnosis, though, they may very well have nutrient deficiencies because they haven't been absorbing what they've eaten. Let me ask you, how dangerous is it for someone with celiac disease to ingest gluten? I'm comparing this like with the peanut allergies, which can be fatal, really. But is it is it that kind of an emergent thing if someone... No, it's not. Uh, and it, it, to, a, to a certain extent, that's it's unfortunate that there isn't always um, a stronger response because some people have no symptoms, so they are lax in the diet. And that can lead to longer-term issues with health. I mentioned the osteoporosis before. That can lead to fractures. Um, anemia can be an issue. Um, 
it's it's more the long-term nutrition deficits. There is a slightly greater risk of lymphoma in the intestine, but the risk is low, but it's greater with untreated celiac disease. Now, what about people who, because um, uh, I've seen diet uh, message boards where they recommend cutting out gluten to lose weight. Is that a strategy that works? Or does that happen for people with celiac disease? If they stop eating gluten, they it lose weight? It can, because if someone is eating a lot of pizza, let's say, or eating large portions of pasta, when they start a gluten-free diet, they have to find choices or options that they like. So sometimes they are not eating as much for a little bit. Um, people who drink a lot of beer and then can't drink beer anymore might be getting fewer calories in their day. So let's talk about what food someone can eat if they have celiac disease. How, how do you counsel people who are newly diagnosed? Because this would be uh, maybe a big change from someone, you know, what they've normally eaten to what maybe they should be eating. Yeah, it, it's, it's difficult at first. But like a lot of things, once people find their options and know where to get them, it becomes more routine. Um, certainly, we have people read food labels. In the United States, wheat as, it has to be listed as an allergen. So if it's listed on the food label, that's an inappropriate food in celiac disease. So you have to look for the word wheat? It doesn't just say gluten on Correct. the food label? Huh. It, it has to say wheat if there's wheat as an ingredient. It doesn't have to say that it has gluten or does not have gluten. Um, some gluten-free products um, have been around for a long time and can be trusted. Um, there are grocery stores now that have their own versions of gluten-free foods. Um, most grocery stores are carrying more gluten-free foods, so people can go sometimes to a particular section in the grocery store. Uh, there are the places that are, are more organic, natural foods. They're more likely to have some gluten-free. Gluten-free options. Yeah. Um, fruits and vegetables. Right. There are a lot of foods that are naturally gluten-free. Okay. Free. Uh, we, potatoes are gluten-free. Rice is gluten-free. Um, corn tortillas are, are most of the time gluten-free. You can read the ingredients on foods that have more than one ingredient, but there are a lot of foods that are naturally gluten gluten-free. Is dairy generally a safe option? Yes. Dairy products? I will have to say, though, that sometimes when people are newly diagnosed with celiac disease, they may not tolerate lactose, the sugar that's in milk and yogurt and some other dairy products, and that's because the small intestine makes the enzymes that break that down. And oh. if the small intestine has been damaged, those enzymes might not be available. What advice do you have for someone with celiac disease who likes to eat out? Is that a problem to go to a restaurant? Yes. Okay. It is. It's, it's a challenge. Uh, many foods have sauces that have wheats in them. There are seasonings that will, might have wheat to keep it flowing, um, seasoning as a powder, let's say. Um, and there can be cross-contamination. So if a hamburger is cooked on the same grill as something that has a breading or coating on it that can cross-contaminate your hamburger. 
There can be ladles or spoons that are used for serving a food that has gluten in it and then used for your mashed potatoes that don't originally didn't have gluten in them. There's just, there's a lot of opportunity for cross-contamination in restaurants. Wow. What about for someone who likes um, cooking and has celiac disease? Is that uh, kind of a safer way to eat? I think so. And I think that if someone really enjoys cooking new things, there's a great opportunity to find new recipes that don't have wheat in them. Well, thank you to Diana Stuber, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate's Jocelyn Diabetes Center. We appreciate this informative discussion. It's a pleasure. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, making wise medical decisions. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. How can a patient determine whether a particular medical test or treatment or procedure is really necessary? I have a guest in the HealthLink on Air studio who is going to tell us. She is Dr. Wendy Levinson, a physician and professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, and she's in Syracuse to give a lecture at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Levinson, and thank you for taking time. Thank you for having me. So tell me about the Choosing Wisely initiative you're involved in. So Choosing Wisely is a campaign designed to engage physicians and other clinicians and patients in conversations about whether tests, treatments, and procedures are really necessary. It's really a campaign that started with physicians starting to say, what could they do about the problem of tests and treatments that are not adding value to patients or some tests can even be harmful to patients. So it started with doctors taking a lead. And it sounds like a, a, a common sense sort of thing. We, who would want to have unnecessary treatment or care? Um, but what, what is driving this? Like what, what made it begin? So, you know, it, it is um, kind of surprising that a lot of research shows that up to 30% of all the tests and treatments that we receive as patients do not help us or might even be harmful. And it's not one reason for that. There are many reasons. Sometimes patients come in and ask for a particular treatment. For example, some of you may have gone to the doctor and asked for antibiotics when really it's a viral infection and antibiotics don't help. Or patients might ask for an x-ray of their back because they're having back pain and that x-ray might not be useful. Sometimes it's that it takes longer to tell the patient and discuss why it's not needed and so a physician might just order it even though in their heart they know that it's not adding that much. Sometimes it's concerned about being sued so we might over order tests as physicians to leave no stone unturned. Um, and But there are uh, very compelling reasons that we teach medical students and young physicians to practice a certain way and once those practice patterns are set doctors kind of tend to follow them without changing them easily. And that might be a very key component of why we have some of the overuse of things that don't add value. Well, and if you're a physician or clinician, you may be just inclined to want to get as many answers as you can 
and there's an unlimited number of tests out there that you could order, but you're making people question really the value of each of those tests. Really. Right. And it's quite important for the patients to know that certain things aren't just benign. So um, if you have drugs that you don't need, it can lead to an adverse drug reaction and a rash or something more serious. X-rays have radiation. Um, in fact, another thing that can happen that we worry about in medicine is something we call a false positive. That if you have a test you don't need and it finds something, then it leads to other tests. So for example, say you um, have an X-ray, chest X-ray you don't need, and there's a little something that doesn't look right. So the radiologist says, well, we'll get a CAT scan. And then it's still there. They say, well, we'll repeat it in three months. So you worry for three months and it's still there. And then they do a biopsy and then you could, that's invasive and you could even have a complication from that. And in the end, it's really something you didn't need. So there's a whole lot of what we would call a cascade of other tests and treatments that come from a false positive. Not to mention the cost of all that. Not to mention the cost, which uh, all Americans know is a big problem in healthcare these days. Well, in America, periodically, there are the debates about, um, for instance, how early to begin mammograms um, or other screening things. So who's to say whether those are necessary to be done early or later? I mean, who gets to be the decider right. in this? Well, um, we always believe that these are conversations between physicians and patients. So that instead of just ordering the test, I think a physician should talk to a woman about a mammogram and say, here are the potential benefits, here are the potential risks. And in fact, there are very good tools that physicians can use to show women, because it's hard to understand numbers and probabilities. So there's some diagrams that help people understand. And then it's part of a conversation and a particular woman may say, well, I want it, even though I know these things. Or another woman might say, oh, now that I know that, I would prefer not to have the mammogram. So it's based on conversations. But to just drop back for a moment, the approach that Choosing Wisely has used is it asked the national medical associations of physicians, different groups, cardiology, radiology, family medicine, to each make a list of five tests, treatments, or procedures in their discipline for which there's excellent scientific evidence of overuse or even harm to patients. So they would come out with statements like, don't order an antibiotic for a upper respiratory tract infection, a cold, when it's a viral in origin, or don't order imaging for low back pain unless, quote, red flags are present. And these were each based on highly scientific evidence. So what's happened is in the United States, there are about 80 or more societies that have come out with their lists. There are over 550 recommendations. And the societies who do have the voice, speak to doctors, um, distribute these and bring them up at their meetings or in their publications. And so physicians have been given guidance from their peers about which tests or treatment might be being overused. And it's scientific. It's, it's based on what they've seen over the course of time. It's absolutely based on scientific research. And each one of these is based on research in the field. So family doctors create a list for family doctors and cardiologists for cardiologists. And then they're really meant to spur these conversations. And further, what's been quite helpful 
is that Consumer Report worked with the group that started this, which is the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, and they created materials for patients. So your patients, the public that are listening, you can go online, look at Choosing Wisely, and there are patient pamphlets and educational materials. I think the key message for patients is that in healthcare, more is not always better. You want the test or treatment when you need it, but you don't want it when you don't because it might cause harm. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Wendy Levinson about the initiative um, called Choosing Wisely. Now, you've got experience um, in Canada and the United States, and I wanted to ask, how much does the system of healthcare in each of those countries contribute to unnecessary care? So it's a very interesting thing to see what's happened. Um, Choosing Wisely started in the United States in 2012, Um, I led the initiative in Canada, though I'm a dual citizen, so I work in both places. And uh, it started in Canada in 2014. But what's very interesting is that Choosing Wisely is now in about 25 countries in the world. And these are countries that range, are very different in their healthcare system, range from Japan and South Korea, Brazil and Colombia, Uh, Australia, New Zealand, and most of the European countries, in addition to Canada and the U.S. And you would say a priori or before, hey, well, these are very different healthcare systems. How could something like this work in different countries? But the answer, I think, is that the act of being a patient and a doctor and working together to make decisions, that's really the same in all of our countries. Despite how the reimbursement system is, despite how we're organized, In the end, doctors and patients sit down together and say, you know, here's the problem, which tests should we do, here are the treatment options, and that is really universal. So the threat of unnecessary care is universal. That could happen in any system. Absolutely. This number that I mentioned at the beginning, that 30% of tests and treatments are potentially unnecessary, came in the United States from something called the Institute of Medicine, which publishes reports. In Canada, we have a Canadian health information system. We found the same, 30%. So this number seems to appear in many different healthcare systems. Is it the threat of lawsuits that drives unnecessary care, or what causes it? Well, it really is, like I've said, multifactorial. Yes, lawsuits, but um, there are so many factors that go into it. And I think the most important is um, it is really the way we learn to practice and certain things we do routinely. And also certain things are sort of baked into the system. Let me give you an example. Often someone will come into the hospital and they're going to have a, a surgical procedure. Well, sometimes a surgical procedure is a big one. Other times it's like a minor hernia repair. But frequently, no matter what they come in for, people will get a lot of tests, like an EKG, chest x-ray, and some lab work. Well, those are probably needed in the big surgeries, but they're often unnecessary in the minor surgeries. But why does it happen? Well, there's just a box, and it says this patient is a preoperative, they're going to have surgery, and it gets ticked off, and these things get done. So we try to kind of question some of those routines, those things that have become the norms, and say, oh, is this old? Is this out of date? Is it still needed? And that helps us improve the system so we're not doing tests that aren't needed. 
How would a patient know if he or she is being recommended for care that's unnecessary? I mean, they come to a physician, they don't know what's wrong. They want to put all of their trust into this physician. So how do they, would it even occur to them to wonder whether this is unnecessary? Well, I think it's important for patients to, in general, know that they have a voice, that decisions with a physician are shared decisions. Because no two patients are the same. They have different values, different priorities. And so in, overall, we encourage patients to ask questions. And we encourage patients to ask four partic- five particular questions. Do I really need this test and treatment? What are the downsides? Are there simpler, safer options? What if I do nothing or wait and watch? And how much will it cost? Hmm. So those are very simple questions. And I think if people got comfortable asking these questions, it helps them engage in a conversation about what the choices are. And an individual patient with their physician can make choices that are right for them. And, And I think that that's just a healthy way to be a patient and work with clinicians and trust, of course, the physician, but it is a shared process. And it seems like though all of those questions are not really yes or no answers. It seems like each one would spur a conversation. Um, you know, do I really need this? I mean, maybe the doctor hasn't thought about that or questioned that. Absolutely. I think these are healthy conversations. So let me give you another example. I mean, someone might come in with back pain. And, you know, I think it's very common for people to think, I have back pain, I need an x-ray or a CT or an MRI. Um, You know, the the physician might say, well, what are you hoping the MRI would achieve? And the patient can then say, well, I'm eager to get back to work, and I think if I have this x-ray, it will help me get back to work more quickly. And then a physician can explain that really these x-rays don't help you get better faster, and that they can pose some risks. And that there are some simpler, safer ways that you can manage back pain. And that can be a conversation where the patient then says, oh, well, now that I know that, I don't really need the x-ray. And then the doctor also then understands sort of the goal of the patient, which may be different. Even if different patients have the same malady, they may have different goals. Absolutely. That's why it's so important for people to talk to physicians about these choices, because many things have multiple options. And what's right for you might not be the same thing as what's right for me. So the Choosing Wisely initiative, does it it take away from a doctor's autonomy to recommend what they think is best? No. I mean, we are, in the Choosing Wisely recommendations, like don't order imaging for low back pain, we're not saying don't don't ever order it. Uh, it's, It's to stop and pause and think, not to order these things routinely on every patient that comes in, you know, to hand out antibiotics when they're not needed. It really is to uh, help physicians pause and think. And we try to provide tools for physicians too, because using the example of the antibiotics for a cold, we know that many patients think that that will help them get better more quickly, that physicians like to please patients, and that may be another reason to overorder unnecessary things. And so we try to give tools like what's called a delayed prescription, which says, you know, do these things for two or three days with, you know, uh, and, you know, anti like Tylenol and fluids and rest, and then only fill the prescription three days later if you're not better. And that's helpful because patients go home 
with a prescription, but also with instructions that they don't necessarily need to fill it. And in fact, frequently then patients don't fill those prescriptions, but they feel reassured that they have them if they need them. Well, it sounds like, too, they've been educated. They haven't just been dictated to. They've been instructed in, you know, how their body's working and how it should work and how it might heal and and that sort of thing. That's correct. I mean, ultimately, you know, we think that a model where patients and doctors share these decisions, patients are educated and make choices is the best for patients. And so we're trying to curb a big problem of overuse, up to 30%, by both physician awareness and uh, and patient awareness. And what's in, what's encouraging is that now that the campaign has been in place for quite a while, we're seeing many episode, uh, incidents in hospitals and family practice clinics where the, there are significant reductions that can be measured in some of these unnecessary tests and treatments. So it is encouraging. It's early days, but there's, and there's a lot more to do, but I do think we're making progress on curbing a very important problem. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to tell us about this. My pleasure. My thanks to Dr. Wendy Levinson from the University of Toronto. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, the Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Flowers are a source of inspiration for poets such as Carol Alexander and Mary Gardner. Alexander's latest book, Environments, is from Dos Madres Press and is a collection of her most recent poetry. Her poem, Immortality, presents a world composed of illness, disability, love, relationship, and nature taking us from sadness to rage to joy in two short stanzas. Immortality. From the Carmen chair wheeled to lunch, you press the bearded iris on me. The therapy dog is well-conformed, keen-nosed, yet biddable. To walk to the creek? Impossible. Impossible the cellar stairs, mounds of laundry, dust mice, spiral notebooks, the pointless lone ice skate. Your still deft hands grasp a glass of tea. I'm here as if I'll always be stronger than that justifiable rage fed from a dish of cracked pink salt. The bearded iris goes by immortality. Bread to charm the meanest eye, why iris in these indrawn days? It clings like the ancient chestnut tree menacing the low garage, an incestuous tree but the iris tethered to its little patch of soil, sword-shaped, anthers flirting to rebloom. A bashed sun filters through chestnut leaves, loquacious roots banked stubbornly. A skunk slinks past the drains. Your nurse rolls down her stockings, texts, smokes an unfiltered cigarette. Doesn't everything grow rich? The burrs that cling to the dog's rough fur indentured for dispersal, dissuading deer, yet untouched by blight, the lustrous lemon air. Mary Gardner, poet from A Skinny Atlas, shows us poetry's concision and compression in her deft poem, Small Promise, which is a glorious word painting of breakfast. 
small promise. Even a rugged day ahead can be acceptable if anticipated by a red nasturtium, freshly cut and secure on a slender sea-green stem, resting upright on a plate of scrambled eggs and avocado. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about kidney stones. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.